and I'm very pleased that we can do what Fred said this morning. We can go to God's Word to, I think, a very appropriate passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I may throw in a comment here or there to help clarify. But if you follow with me, this is the English Standard Version, Isaiah chapter 40. And the prophet writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in its scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, its famous cedars, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, 
A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. These rulers, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. It's referring to the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who's been so kind to encourage us with words from Scripture, inspired and preserved for us this day in the 21st century, speak, Holy Spirit, to the hearts of Your people. Comfort, comfort, encourage, and strengthen the men and the women, the boys and the girls of this church today for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen. What a glorious passage of Scripture. It begins with comfort, it ends with encouragement. And in the middle is an incomparable description of the power, the strength, and the compassion of our God. The first 11 verses talk about comfort and how to find comfort, or at least we can learn how to find comfort in a very uncomfortable world from those first 11 verses. And then the final portion from 12 to 31 describe this God of all comfort. Paul talked about God as the God of all comfort, who comforts those who are in any kinds of trials or difficulties or sufferings so that they in turn can comfort others. 
We just got a wonderful example of that from that letter that Andrew just read. From someone who has been comforted in his sufferings and turns around and points us to the God of all comfort. So comfort. What, what is it? Are you comfortable? You have your seats. You comfortable? Hope you are. Nice temperature in here. You know what I mean when I say that. But comfort, discomfort, it can take other forms too. As in, I was uncomfortable when he began talking about politics. That's a different kind of comfort, discomfort. And then there was the extreme discomfort of the mother who years ago got a letter from her son at summer camp. Dear Mom, I failed my swimming test again, but don't worry. Tonight when there's no one around, I'm going back down to the lake to practice. That's discomfort that a mother experiences. There's also when the doctor says, now, you're going to feel a little discomfort. That's warning you you're about to, don't be surprised when you scream bloody murder in just a moment here. But, but comfort uh, can be thought of in that sense of, of reassurance. You know, there, there, it's going to be all right. That, that, that's comfort, right? But the word itself means literally with strength. Latin fort, strength and come with, with strength. There is certainly when Isaiah is prophesying here a reassurance that he intends but there's even more than that. There's an impartation of strength. This chapter is all about comfort, comforting God's people. Reassurance and strength. Comforting God's people who have been very uncomfortable for a very long time. They are in need of strength. They're in need of reassurance. Because you see, they've been in exile in Babylon for 70 long years. Uh, Just a little bit about the backdrop here. Isaiah is prophesying of a future time when God's people are going to return and come back from captivity from having been in exile. Now, they actually haven't gone into exile yet when he's prophesying this. But he's prophesying on the far side of the exile about when they come back. To be exiled is to be forced from your homeland. It's to be banished. And there are involved in that all kinds of collateral and ancillary sufferings that go along with that sort of thing. And the people of Israel were going to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And when he wrote that, Isaiah knew that this was going to happen because, you see, God's people had involved themselves in idolatry, and they'd been warned over and over again, God hates idolatry, just like Indiana Jones hates snakes. He hates, hates idolatry. He hates it. He hates it because it defeats, it defames God's image, man, with the lie that God himself is something other than he is portrayed. And it causes all kinds of problems. So he warned them, don't go into idolatry, but they did it anyway. So in faithfulness to the covenant, God was going to chastise them. He was going to punish them as children, discipline them, if you will. 
wasn't going to cast them off entirely, but they were going to pay for this. And now Isaiah is prophesying and he says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Tell them that their warfare is ended, their iniquity is paid in full. They've suffered double or the full penalty for all their sins. They're going to be coming back. The exile was traumatic. The whole episode was traumatic. And that's really an understatement. They're coming back. Jerusalem is in ruins. Their hopes and their dreams. Future. It's all laying shattered in the rubble. And they're coming back to an uncertain situation. And uncomfortable situation. They're returning to the land, but they are shaky, they are unstable, they need strength, they need security, they need hope, they need comfort. They need to find comfort in an uncomfortable world, and God wants to bring that to them. Now, have you considered that you also have been exiled from your home? Are you aware that you and I have been exiled from our home with God? Probably not, because this is all we've ever known. But ever since Eden, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled and were expelled from the garden, we have been living in exiles. And that's why we're never totally at home here in the world. We are strangers and exiles in this world. Here, it says in Hebrews, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, being the people of God. And as Jesus said to his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. As it says in Job, man's born to trouble as sparks fly upward from a fire. That's why you're never, ever going to have everything in your life where it's all fixed. There's always something out of whack, isn't there? And sometimes, really out of whack. Now, it is true. Through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. And we've been reconciled to God. The big work is already done. But our salvation is not complete. We still await the glorious return of our Lord who will defeat all the enemies of God and the last enemy to be defeated is death. It has not yet been defeated. And it's emblematic of all of the sorrows that we face in this life. So we wait for Him. We await the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you this morning from this passage of Scripture about how you might find comfort in an uncomfortable world. And the first part is going to be those, chat, those verses from, from Isaiah 41 through 11. Uh, the first way is that God comforts us when we agree with His glorious goal. God comforts us or we find comfort when we fall in line with His glorious goal, when we get in step with the Spirit, when we make His goal our goal. When we do that, we're on the road to finding comfort. So what is God's goal? What is God's glorious goal? Well, it is just that. The glory of the Lord 
is the goal of our God. It's found at the end of verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now, glory is one of those religious words that just goes in one ear and out the other, leaving little or no impression. It's just one of those words, isn't it? Glory. But it is actually supremely important. It's supremely important to God. Jonathan Edwards used it in his title of his book, The End for Which God Created the World. It's actually his glory. Glory, think of glory as the manifestation of God's absolute reality. You think of it like this. You're a Christian, you're a believer, and you have friends. I have a dear friend that is in the last stages of cancer, and she is dying. And I went to visit with her, and I asked her, you know, it's well with her soul. And she knows she's going to be with, with Jesus. But what is heaviest on her heart right now are family members and people that she knows and cares about that don't know the Lord. They don't know His reality. She knows it. We know it. We know it by faith. But see, the glory of the Lord is actually the manifestation of His reality. Haven't you ever wanted to shake someone and say, God is real. He's really real. I'd love to show you my salvation, but I can't take it out of my pocket and present it to you. I can't show you a picture of it on my iPhone. You know, so we, we're frustrated because we're looking forward. That's God. God wants to display His glory and will display His glory. But right now, His glory is not evident. Well, it's coming. And that's why the voice says, prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming to His people. The people are coming back to Jerusalem, but God is coming. Now, I've been to the Judean hills, and it is some of the most rugged terrain on earth. But what's being said here is God is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is a divine road construction project, shovel ready, to make a way for the Lord to come. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked ways made straight, the rough places plain, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Who said those words? Who remembers the beginning of God's spell? Prepare ye the way of the Who said that? John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord. And so the Lord came, Jesus came, and manifested the glory of God, right? Yes. But it was a veiled glory. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Hark the herald angels, right? That's the glory of God. That's Jesus Every once in a while, there's a glimpse of it, like on Mount Transfiguration. But Jesus came with veiled glory to do the work of redemption so that through faith, you and I could believe and see His glory with the eyes of faith. One day He will return. 
His glory will no longer be veiled. But of course, by that time for the world, it will be too late. We need to believe in Him now. God deals with us on the basis of faith. So this is what makes a Christian someone who believes that Jesus lived, died on a cross, rose from the grave, right? He's ascended into the heavens right now. We believe that, don't we? Have you ever seen Him? Are your names written in the book of life? How many? Raise your hand if your name is written in the book of life. Good, that's good. How many of you have seen the book? How do you know? Well, by faith, but not by blind faith. By faith in this. That whole business about the book of life. Okay? Yeah, it's in here. Is there a literal book? I don't know. I think God has it all down in His mind. I think he's, He knows. But we read it in the book. And through faith we believe Christ has come. Okay? But there's more coming. God is coming. And this is like preparing for a dignitary. Back in those ancient times, they would prepare for the coming of a great dignitary by, in a sense, rolling out the red carpet. So that's what this passage is talking about. Prepare the way of the Lord because the goal is the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. It's certain. It's going to happen. That's the end goal of God, the revelation, the total revelation of His glory. And right now, that is to be our goal. We live to glorify Him. What's the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? I hope you know it, even if you're not a Presbyterian. It's great. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a great way to start the cat. That's a great way to order your life. Order your life like this, my friends. Live your life for His glory. If you live your life for His glory, if you are married and you really want to love your wife, you don't do it because you want to make her happy ultimately. You do it ultimately because you want to glorify Him. And that way, if she's being hard to love at times, you still do it because you want to glorify Him. It's not because you're necessarily getting anything. You're giving something to Him as an honor to God. So, the glory of God. Get in line with His purposes. Because it says here, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. And speaking of flesh, that actually brings us to the second point. A mysterious voice cries out and says... All flesh is grass, and the glory, all its beauty, is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, and then it's repeated, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So how can we find comfort in an uncomfortable uncomfortable world? Num- number one, fall in line with His purpose, which is His glory. And number two, realize that the only thing that is permanent is God's Word. Uh, it's certainly not flesh. Now, flesh here refers to mankind, to people. And the cry goes out. It's a mysterious cry. We don't know who's saying it, but he's saying this. All flesh is grass, and grass is not durable 
It's not stable. It's not strong. It doesn't last. It's not permanent. But the comparison here is that the Word of God stands forever. That is where certainty can be found. That's where permanence is located. That's where hope and comfort can be had. Again, I refer back to Fred's letter. He's learned in his trials and in his pain and suffering to go to the Word of God. That is so wise. Oh, that's so very wise because that's where certainty can be found. And that's why we preach the Bible. And that's why if you are a Christian and you don't read your Bible regularly, you're malnourished. How many of you would go through a day without eating? Unless you're fasting, you always find a time to eat. You spend a lot of time thinking about eating. I know I do. I think about what I'm going to eat. I love to play golf. And I know my golf game's going bad when I stop thinking about the next shot and think about what I'm going to eat when this round is over. If you're a golfer, you know what I'm talking about. But it's true for all of us. We think about eating. But what about the Word of God? You've got to eat the Word of God. This is how He reveals Himself to us. This is where we find out who He is and who we are. And note again the impermanence of everything else. The impermanence of mankind. We're like grass. All flesh is like grass. All the glory, all the beauty of mankind is fleeting. Even the best, the brightest, the beautiful, we do not last. We blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree and wither and perish. But not changeth thee. Now, there are some extraordinary ones among us who are like wild flowers compared to us ordinary grass types. They're the best, the brightest, the beautiful, the beautiful young woman, the handsome young man, the celebrity, the famous singer, the powerful politician. These are the glorious ones. And what God says about them, yeah, okay, yeah, they've got a little bit of glory there. They're kind of like a wild flower compared to just ordinary grass. But in the end, the breath of the Lord blows on it and they wither and they perish. Many years ago when I was in Lancaster County, I lived in the town of Millersville and I attended the Millersville Ministerium. And that's where all the local ministers, pastors get together and they have some, you know, level of fellowship and so we're sitting in there on a Monday morning and, uh, and uh, the, the, the campus Methodist minister comes in and he says, you guys are not going to believe what happened. My wife and I went to this wedding as guests on Saturday and in the message they had an evangelist who gave the message and this guy was a fiery evangelist and he got up the head of steam and at one point he spoke to the groom and he said, now Bob... You're young and you're handsome and you look over there at Janet and she's lovely and beautiful as a bride and you love her with all your heart. But I'm going to tell you that one day, years from now, you're going to wake up one morning and she's going to look like her mother and then will you still love her? <laughs> and Rich said, we were stunned. Did he really say that? And he said a moment later, he realized that he said it. But by then it was too late. I said, what happened next? He says, we all looked at the mother. <laughs> and what did she do? She stared straight ahead. 
<laughs> this is why it is dangerous to be a preacher. I do. I pray. I seriously, I pray every time. I say, Lord, help me to offend no one, unless it be the offense of the cross. I'll handle that. But all right. Well, here the guy was making a legitimate point, but it was a disastrous application. The point is, yeah, Janet one day is going to look like her mother. <laughs> That's what happens, folks. If you're young here today and you think it's always going to... Now, take a look at your parents and your grandparents and... Okay. That's where you're headed if God's good to you. If you live long enough, all flesh is grass. And even the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we can find comfort in an uncomfortable world if we will attend to God's word. That's the only thing that's going to last. And then the third way, God comforts us when we behold him. This is found in verses 9 and 10. Three times you have this repetition. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. And then immediately after that, there's this striking contrast. He will lead His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms, carry them in His bosom, and gently Gently lead those that are with young. Behold your God. It's repeated for emphasis. Stop, look, and listen. And when we stop and look and listen and behold our God and learn about Him, we read about Him, we study Him, we pray to Him, we talk to Him, we spend that time with the Bible, and I recommend the study of theology, learning about God and who He is. When we do that, we find out some important things about God. I just want to say here, I want to, I want to say, look, if you obsess about a music group, you are a groupie, right? If you obsess about food, you are a foodie. If you can't stop looking at your phone, you are a... I didn't say it. Someone over here did. Okay? I leave you to meditate on that. How much time do you spend beholding God in the mirror of His Word? And how much time do you spend... Okay? Think about that. I want you to think... I want you to be uncomfortable about that one. Because here we have an amazing picture of God, beholding God. It says in verse 10 that His arm rules that He has might, but in verse 11 that His arms carry, they gather the lambs. His arm is strong. His arms are loving. He only needs one arm to rule, but He uses two to show affection. That's a combination of strength and gentleness. It's a beautiful picture of God. 
You know, uh, many years ago when I was a young man, I worked as a maintenance man in a, in a nursing home. And I was in a room one time where I saw uh, an aide trying to get a fairly large patient out of a wheelchair and into the bed. And the aide was very rough and was not gentle at all. It wasn't intentional. The guy just wasn't very strong. And then a very strong aide came in, a big guy who gently lifted the patient out of the wheelchair and put him on the bed. I said, ah, it's interesting. It takes strength to be gentle. Our God is very great. He is very strong. So he can be gentle. And as a matter of fact, he is gentle. It's interesting. In the New Testament, the same Greek word is used to translate gentleness and kindness. Those are qualities that I've come to appreciate so much more the older that I get. You can call them the Lord's tender mercies, just those little things that He does to indicate that He's there. Like the kind comments and notes and letters that you've sent to let the Cato family know that you're thinking about them, the times that you go out of your way to serve others, that word of encouragement that you could have just walked to your car, but instead you walked over to that friend because you just thought, you know what, I just wanted to encourage you. I noticed something. I appreciate it or pray with some Those kind of little things like that. That's, that's the Spirit of the Lord gathering the lambs in His arms. It's such a beautiful picture. Um, I love that phrase too. Uh, it's how He gently leads those that are with young. It indicates the affection and the gentleness. And the special place that God has for mommies with little ones. And you know, it's not just the mommies with the little ones. His affection and gentleness doesn't end when your children are grown. Because you never stop being a mom, do you? It's a precious thing in God's sight to be a mom, to be a grandma, to be a great-grandma. I think uh, God considers them to be pretty special people. So, as you behold your God, and as you read things like this, you get an indication of His character. And when you behold Him in His strength and in His gentleness, it comforts you. It strengthens you. It gives you strength for the journey that lies ahead. To be a little brief here with the second part of the um, chapter. But the second part expands on this point of beholding God. It tells us some things about God. It describes Him. And it's just a, a wonderfully majestic portion of Scripture. There is the use in this passage of what we call rhetorical questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Who has done this? Who has done this? It's similar to that ending of the book of Job. A rhetorical question is not a question that we ask because we want to get information. What do you think I am? Some kind of an idiot? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, oh, no, 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 you're not an idiot. God asks all these rhetorical questions not to get information, but to make a point. And to make a point dramatically. And what's the point that he's making? 
that he's very great. Well, what does he have to say about himself? He's so great, he's so powerful, that he measures the waters, the oceans, in the palm of his hand. Just one hand, all the oceans. He measures out the heavens with a span. Span is the distance from the thumb to the thumb, about nine inches. Metaphorically speaking, that's all God needs to measure out the entire expanse of the universe. And the land mass of the earth, the mountains and the hills, and you put them in a balance, you can measure them there. And speaking about measuring, who has measured him? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Now, the point is, he's the one that does the measuring. You don't measure him. He measures us. And the answer to all these questions is, who did no one can do this but the Lord. Well, what about the nations of the world? This is what leads on the news cycle 24-7. That's the most important stuff, isn't it? Well, according to Isaiah 40-15, it's not. To him, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. All the nations, one drop. And it's actually even worse than that. In verse 17, it says, all the nations are as nothing before him. Nothing is actually less than one drop. And it's even worse than that. They're accounted by him as less than nothing. First you got one drop, then you got nothing, then you got less than nothing and emptiness. Now look, the nations are important. These things are important. I'm not trying to minimize that. The point is, by comparison, here's the nations in a balance. Here's God. They're like nothing. Well, what about rulers? They're really important, aren't they? Verses 23 and 24, you can look at them. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. Remember reading that earlier in the chapter? And the tempest carries them off like snow. Obama, Putin, Trump, Clinton. Again, it's not that these people are unimportant. They are important, but comparatively speaking, they are less than nothing. What's God doing here? He wants to give us perspective. That's why when the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, if he made the heavens and the earth, do you think he's able to help you with your little problem? Yes, he is. But what about the uniqueness of God? Aren't there others like him? No, no. It's the whole thing about idolatry. Talks a little bit about it here. An idol exclamation point, as if exasperated. People looking to idols. Are you kidding me? You get into what Isaiah, uh, what I like to call Isaiah's the lunacy of idolatry. It's crazy. But this is what it is. It's not just, don't let your mind go to people in faraway lands bowing down to statues. Think about anybody who puts anything as ultimate other than God. Whether it's another person or a career or money or power or influence or golf or what, you know, whatever. No. 
God is ultimate. His glory is what, to be, is what is to be sought. Isaiah describes this, and he wants to help us. He says, to whom will you compare me? And, 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 he, and then he, he says, lift up your eyes and look. That, that, this is the host of heaven. Okay? I want to say something to the scientists among us. This is what our secular world does that just looks at this world. They say, oh yeah, but the heavens, that's really great. They've always existed. Oh, they have. How do you know that? Well, science is, no, no, science hasn't shown that at all. No one has been able to make the observations to determine that the universe is eternal. That is a philosophical, a scientific philosophical or an even religious presupposition that people come up. It's an article of faith. That is as much an article of faith as saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, there's a lot we'd like to know. But it hasn't been shown us. Christianity has always had its cultured despisers. The Bible has always had its cultured despisers. They look down on people of faith. But we are not so dumb as we look. And you, my cultured friend, may not be so smart as you think. God created the heavens and the earth. We receive that word of revelation and the eyes of our faith see it. We don't understand it all. But it is true. The heavens Declare what? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. I will lift up my eyes. This is where my help comes from. God is unique. God is great. God is powerful. But even granting all that, for those who are hurting, for those who are discouraged, the question remains... Yeah, but will He help me? Not can He, but will He? And so at the end of the chapter, you have this portion here, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. This is the honest question of the sufferer. This is what Isaiah prophetically anticipates from a discouraged people returning from exile to who knows what. And what about the future? When you look out in the future, it can look a little bit grim. If you spend more time reading the news than your Bible, I guarantee you, you will be discouraged. And if you are anxious, it tells me that you're spending more time looking at things than you are looking at God. I know because that's the way it is with me. I get discouraged and I get anxious. And it's a cue to go back to beholding my God. Does God know and does God care? The remainder of the chapter tells us one thing very important. It tells us God doesn't faint or grow weary, but God gives. God gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Look, even youths and young men, 
those are the people in our society that have the most stamina, who have the most strength, who have the most energy. Even youths and young men, they will faint and get weary. But those who wait on the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, they'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. But it's for those who wait on the Lord. Well, what does that mean? My friends, waiting on God is a special kind of trust. It's just another way of saying trust in the Lord. But it's a particular form of trust that's related to hope. See, God promises things to us, things that we don't yet possess. Is He good for those promises? Well, our trust in Him says yes. But what about when it's hard? Like, I mean, very hard. What about when we're uncomfortable? Very uncomfortable. Yes. Trusting in God, believing what you do not see, if it is in the book as a true promise of God, what you have read about Him. See, the waiting is designed to deepen the relationship. It's going back to that Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there's none that I desire upon the earth besides Thee. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, You're the strength of my life and my portion forevermore. We want just to have a happy life. God wants a relationship with us. If He gave us everything so we, were all, we wouldn't think about Him at all. But God wants to deepen the relationship. So He uses these trials and His hardships to deepen the relationship. He calls us to wait on Him, to trust in Him. We relate to Him on the basis of faith, not sight. He expects us to trust Him. Yeah, but He doesn't tell me everything I want to know. No, He, he doesn't promise that. But He tells you enough. He tells you what you need to know. So if you feel forgotten, so did Israel, so did Jacob. If you feel that way, just remember the Lord's the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. He gives power to the faint. God does this for those who wait. He is never late. He's always right on time, but it's always longer than we want. Right? It's always longer than we want. Because by doing that, he deepens the relationship with us. So for you today, for those you of you here today who are young and you've been rocked by recent events and you think, well, wait a minute, what can I really count on? And this, this just makes me question the future. It may, makes me question the character of God. Yeah, you will faint and grow weary if you stay at that level. But if you look to Him, if you look to His Word, you will find the strength to continue on. For those who are with young, to those who are afraid, all of the energy that I spend in raising a child, and then I see it taken away. That scares me. I mean, when things like this happen, we, we grieve for the others. We do. We grieve for them. 
but it has an effect on us. It scares us. What if something like that happens to me? What's it going to be like for me? And that's when, as Fred said in his letter, he would direct our eyes back to him. That is such wise advice. For the young, for those who have young, and for those that are old, (laughs) for those of us that are getting up there, (laughs) and especially those that are dealing with chronic problems, whether it's chronic health problems or a chronically difficult relational issue. And you can't walk away from it, but you still suffer the effects of it day after day. I want to tell you something. There's a place of refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. When God talks about comfort, comfort you, comfort you, my people. It's not just a there, 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 there. It's a comfort that goes beyond reassurance and is gentle, but also has strength. And we can point to our Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has endured all of the suffering and all of the rejection and all of the pain and all of the sin who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And He suffered and died so that He could bear our sins. But He rose from the dead so that He could save us from our sins, receive us to Himself. And even though right now we do not see Him, Yet we believe in Him and we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory as we continue to walk out the mission of faithfully witnessing to His reality and calling others to trust in Him as well. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus or you're not sure if you are, if you're kind of checking it out and you're on the fence, All of us were in that place at one point. But we came to a place where we said, you know, I I need to trust in the Word of God. I need to turn away from my own way of doing things and turn to Him and follow Him. I want to encourage you to do that, to put your faith in Christ. If your faith's been challenged, you feel like you've been shaky, turn back and look to the Lord again. Close your eyes as I pray for you. And as we close, dear Heavenly Father,